0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.
1: If you're struggling with drugs, alcohol, gambling or food, or concerned about somebody who is, tune in to The Living Free Show on 3CR at 1pm every Thursday. I don't know how I got there but and I couldn't stop it.
0: I had stopped expecting that anybody cared.
1: Never enough. I'm never enough. It's never enough. He's never enough.
0: That was the confusion.
1: Tune in to Living Free, stories of recovery from addictive behavior. Thursdays at 1 p.m. on 3CR. Or listen at 3CR on digital radio or podcasts and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. Being able to centre myself and be okay in myself and turn my world around. Living Free.
0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio. 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. My name is Gab and I'm an alcoholic and addict in recovery. I would like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of this land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Each week on Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drug, alcohol, gambling, and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery stories and highlight that shared experience can save lives. Today, we have a great friend of mine from the rooms, Glenn, on the show. Glenn is a recovering alcoholic who uses Alcoholics Anonymous as part of his recovery
2: toolkit. Hello, Glenn. Good afternoon, Gabs. Thanks for having me. My
0: absolute pleasure. That's you. Oh, that was another minute. Yep. So, sorry, guys. Sorry, listeners there. We're just having some technical difficulties. Just keep, going, yeah. keep going. Okay. Great. Sorry, Glenn. No problem at all. <laughs> um, so, welcome to the show. I'm so grateful to have you here with me.
2: Thank you for asking me.
0: That is quite all right. Now... What we do and what the format is here is we talk about experience, strength and hope like we do um, when we share amongst our peers in the rooms, et cetera, but we yeah. do a bit of an extended version um, just to get to know you a bit better and for the listeners to be able to you know, connect in and hear your story. Sure. So I'd love to get started and I'd love for you to start back, back with little Glenn. Tell me about where you were from, what well, your life was like in the beginning. Wow,
2: well, okay. Um... I've shared this a few times, like in the rooms and also rehab. So I guess uh, I'm the youngest of four siblings. Um, I grew up in a pretty standard household, except where alcohol was uh, a normal part of everyday life. Um, I my three older siblings are ten years plus older than me, and uh, and look, if I'm honest, we grew up uh, in a household that, on the outside, looked had all the bells and whistles, had the car and the house and the private schools. Uh, but internally uh, things were the opposite. Um, It was quite dysfunctional and, you know, I can blow my childhood but, you know, I I bring this up because I think it's an important part of my story and what made me the person I am today. Uh, So my siblings pretty much all departed the family home when they got to the age of 18 or 19, Um, I guess because they were sick of the you know, the the toxic environment in which we, we grew up in, and I can't sugarcoat it, uh, it's just the way it was. Mm-hmm. And as a eight, nine-year-old, I was basically an only child, and I didn't know any better. Yeah. Um, I could go into some, uh, you know, pretty ordinary stories of my, you know, father would leave. Uh, he had a uh, business. He had a camp bed set up there where he would then go off to and leave me at home. Uh with an alcoholic mother um to be raised, and you know a, looking back it was uh it was a pretty toxic environment, but as a ten year old that was my life I didn't know any better yeah so i I grew up um I've never been diagnosed with depression, but definitely anxiety, and I mm-hmm. think that came from a very early age
0: yeah okay that's that's pretty uh hard hitting so what did you do? At that time, do you remember sort of what you did for coping mechanisms back? Can you look back and reflect on any of the isms, I guess, that had come out at that stage?
2: Yeah, perfectionism is a big one for me. Yeah. Yep. avoidance, procrastination, uh, isolate a lot. I, you know, I used to love my Lego Meccano building models. I'd um, just steal away to my room, uh, left to my own devices and, and basically I didn't know it at the time, but looking back and, and having some therapy since, I'd, I'd self soothe yep. uh, using those coping mechanisms. But yeah, definitely isolation and and still perfectionism, avoidance, and procrastination are big issues for me still today that I'm working on at the moment.
0: Yeah, wow. So were you at school at that time? Were you in so
2: school? So I'm I'm going back to when I was like ten or eleven, towards the end of um, primary school. Yep, and then. Uh, my first few years in secondary school, I went to an APS school, and while I was never physically abused, like I had two older brothers who definitely uh, put me down a lot, uh, verbally, you know, mentally abused me, uh, especially with sporting things, and so I always grew up, um, I guess, you know, with an inferiority complex, and always being put down, uh and it was, I guess, looking back now, it was hard.
0: Mm. Mm.
2: But it was what I grew up with, and I didn't know any better.
0: Yeah, so you didn't know any better. That's that's you know hear that that's quite common. Was you know that's your life. So why yeah. would you know any different to that? Yeah. Do you remember feeling any type of joy, happiness during you know those childhood years and, and early teens?
2: Um, like, when you- I started developing and getting into sport and then realising mm. I was I was quite big and strong um, and was all right at sport then. I started to get recognised for who I was. But I guess just prior to that, having you – know, I touched on the fact that, you know, had a big house in East Bentley, two-storey, new jag, boat in the marina, mm. um, and all my friends envied me. Oh, yeah. look at all your stuff. I envied them because of their happy home life. Yeah. Uh, so there were two stark differences, like, you know, in, in, in growing up. Like, mm. I wanted what they had. I couldn't give a, a rat's about the material things when I was 10, 12, 13. Yeah. And uh, all I wanted was a, you know, happy home environment.
0: Yeah. So mm. talk to me more about the sport. Did you, like, yeah, talk me through, obviously that was a bit of an escapism for you. It was something that you found you were good at. Um, so how long you know did you sort of divulge into the sport and yes. Things like yes
2: so I guess uh mid-teens like I was I was quite tall and gangly and my brothers would call me unco and goofy and buck teeth and but then I started growing into my body and then I started rowing for an APS school and you know in year 11 and 12 I was six foot four and 86 kilos and I was playing rugby union and and rowing in the first eight and um you know people started to notice me and um, I actually even got asked to go and train for mercantile where the first awesome Forsome came from.
0: Wow!
2: But then I was a late bloomer, I guess, in terms of my drinking career, because yep. all my mates were drinking a lot sooner than I did. But I was into my sport; I was going to gym, no going to the pub. Yep. But then when I left school, I chose my sport. I went and played rugby instead of rowing because. It encouraged drinking after training and yeah. on, a, on a game on a Saturday, whereas rowing was a seven-day-a-week training regime and strict diet and zero alcohol. Mm-hmm. And at 19, I'm like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Yeah. So um, at, I guess, going back a little bit around the teenagers, you were still at home. When did you leave home?
2: Uh, think so. I stayed till about... 20 so my father passed away when i was 21 um he died of lung cancer uh and i felt obliged to stick around for while because all my siblings had already gone yeah and and basically so mum wouldn't be left alone yeah um and then i left i I left and came back a few different states you know that early 20s i did a backpacking thing and um i still didn't think i had a problem with alcohol i thought backpacking through europe and drinking every day was just a rite of passage
0: oh absolutely i did the same thing yeah (laughs) but
2: um and yeah they say it's insidious and progressive and it is and it was very slow a slow burn for me but it it got worse and worse over the next decade
0: so tell me then do you remember the first time you got drunk
2: i do i can
0: tell me that experience
2: absolutely vividly yeah uh (laughs) So mum and dad loved entertaining, you know, the neighbours and they had a boat at the marina. I remember they were going out with a group of of, um, couples from the marina. They all had prees at our place in East Bentley and I was the second oldest. I think I was 15 and a half, nearly 16. There was one guy uh, who was (laughs) 17 and there was all this alcohol left over and some younger kids and we were all just left in the house to watch telly and whatever yep. and he said oh you've been you drink you've been drunk before my like, cuff yeah of course I have mate <laughs> I'm hey I'd never had a drink in my life yeah. so I remember I got drunk on sweet sherry oh. which was disgusting and um
0: that is sorry I have, that is such an Irish thing because my <laughs> yeah. nan used to drink sherry yeah so I have yeah, yeah as, as you know I have a Belfast connection as well yeah, yeah well, that's, that's where awful. my mum's from so I mm-hmm. come from a
2: long line of Cherry drinkers, alcohol. <laughs> I was going to say Irish alcoholics, but um, and mum and dad got home with the other parents and obviously knew something wasn't right. And then I, uh, I brought up the day's takings all over the kitchen floor, and uh, somebody put me to bed. I just remember waking up the next morning and thinking, I don't know why people drink. That I feel like I want to die. It's the most horrific thing I've ever experienced. I'm, pff, I'm just never going to drink again.
0: Yeah, yep. I had a very similar experience that that first blackout. Um, so were you, were you always a blackout drinker after that, or
2: uh, no? I was pretty lightweight actually. Okay. I, I'd go to rowing parties and try to fit in by drinking, but I actually didn't enjoy it. Like yep. I'd have to force myself to drink beer, and then my mates would tease me because I drink those West Coast coolers or <laughs> half and half. Like they were pretty. It was like half wine, half. Uh, juice, so disgusting. But I didn't like beer. Yeah. And I'd have four beers, and I'd get like reflux, and I'd throw up, and I didn't like it until you know I tried it enough and forced myself to become a drinker in late year twelve, I guess.
0: Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's that's a really interesting point around the forcing forcing the beers mm. to to put on this persona. Yeah. Um. And. You know what society sort of tells you as a young man, and going into that world, and yeah, so you you felt that you felt that that was sort of what you needed to do. Yeah,
2: especially like as I was going back to the rugby culture, as playing union, yep. it was encouraged. Like if you didn't drink your body weight after a game, then you were yep.
0: pee weak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 hundred percent. Yeah, yep. So it's I saw it. I saw it a lot where I grew up as well. Yeah. Um. So when did sport exit your life in that, I guess, elite way?
2: Uh, so, well, I mean, people say they don't have regrets. I ha- I have lots. Not continuing rowing still one of my biggest. I don't know if I would have ed- ever made that squad, but I'll never know. Uh, so I continued playing rugby for a couple of years after that, and then I did one knee skiing. Uh, I did the other knee playing rugby, and then after those operations, I sort of gave it away, Kept up the gym, but um, was more interested in just meeting girls, going out partying and, and keeping up my, my physique because um, yep. I, I was going to gym five nights a week back even in my early to late 20s. Yeah, wow. But I just stopped playing competitive sport.
0: So with the rowing, I think we might have skipped over this a little bit. Why did you stop rowing?
2: Uh, it was too hard. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I took the easier option. Yeah. And and that, you know, looking back in hindsight, uh, that became a theme for the rest of my life. Like the easiest softer way and that's mentioned in, in the book of AA. Yep. And I never thought about it till I read the book. But yeah, going back to yeah, I got the letter from Mercantile Rowing saying we want you to come and train with this crew and my I won't name names, but my coach in U twelve Coached the awesome force and the three Olympic gold. Yep. Um, and I was invited to go and train with that squad, they wanted me, yeah And I knew what the training involved. I'm like, that's too it's hard. Too hard basketball. Rugby's twice a week, go to the Carlton Bowling Club for a beer after training, and um. Get smashed after the game. Yeah, so you was, could have
0: the best of both worlds. You could yeah. still play something at quite a you know good level. Yeah, but you could also have the party, the beers, the bonding.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I chose it purely on it was just too hard. I took the easy way. Yeah. Three yeah. CR
0: is radical radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be
1: part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession. $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation and $300 solidarity. Call 03 9419 8377, that's 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Total lack of respect for
0: the law. Tune in to Done by Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis
1: from diverse community perspectives.
2: Done by Law, 6 pm Tuesdays.
0: This is a living free show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM radio dial and 3CR on digital radio. My name is Gab, and today I'm chatting with Glenn about his recovery journey and Alcoholics Anonymous. Before we get back into our conversation, I want to mention that this week at 3CR is our annual subscriber drive. 3CR relies on the support of our listeners to keep going. We're a not-for-profit community radio licence holder and a strong subscriber base is vital for our financial independence. We are proudly community-owned and community-controlled. To subscribe, jump online to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or give us a call on 03 9419 8377. Your support is greatly appreciated. Now, back to you, Glenn. Um, So we've just had a bit of a chat about your childhood, teenage years, growing up, how sport was a big influence in your life. Um, And, you know, we started to talk about the drink. Um, So what I want to sort of get to now is talk me through, I guess, you're in – so you're just talking about your travel. You're in sort of early 20s. Your father had passed away. You're back living with mum. When did the drinking – start getting problematic looking back now
2: oh looking back now um definitely mid-20s and probably even before that but i think i was in a lot of denial back then i just thought i was a high functioning heavy drinker uh where when i look back it was affecting you know every aspect of my life my mid to late 20s i dropped off gym yeah i was thrown in. To a management role in a family business. It was another sort of dysfunctional part of our family growing up that, um, at one point or another, my oldest brother's 13 years old, the next one's 10 years older. Mm-hmm. At some point or another, from my, say, mid 20s to mid 30s, um, we all had different goes at running the family mm-hmm. business. And because our father had passed away, uh, it became very toxic and dysfunctional. Yeah. And, um, I'm not blaming that on my drinking ramping up, but it certainly didn't help. And I'm sure I would have done a much better job when I was put in the management role if alcohol wasn't a problem for me. But again, I was in denial, I think, for more than a decade, just thinking I thought – I just thought I was a high-functioning, heavy drinker. If you had told me I was an alcoholic when I was 30, I would have told you to go jump in the lake. (laughs) I'm not lying on a park bench for the – a bottle in a brown paper bag. I drink Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, and then it became Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, and then yep. Monday. I'd have a hangover, and slowly and surely, over a decade or more, I became a daily drinker. Not a lot, but a daily drinker.
0: So, you, if hitting your thirties, what's going on in your life at that time? Other than the family business stuff, what's so, happening I in mean,
2: your life? On the outside, I mean, uh, I got married, yep. um, had our first baby when I was thirty-one, mm-hmm. who's and uh, building a house and running the family business, and and so I'm lining up all what society calls you know my ducks in a row. I don't yep. like that saying, but you know, got getting all the externals and doing okay, yep. and despite drink had drinking a lot, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, but didn't think it was a problem because look at me—I'm doing all these good things and everything's happening. Uh, so it was just sort of business as usual.
0: Yeah, really checking the box. I, I really understand that checking the boxes of life. Yep. Um, but internally, it just doesn't reflect the outside and what's what's happening.
2: Yeah. No, sorry. N- n- knowing now what I—if I had known then what I know now—is that like. I was expecting all these external things to make me happy. And the more external things I got, the less happy I was getting and the less happy I was getting, the more I was medicating that with alcohol. I'm I'm lucky that, and then we had a baby girl a few years later and, you know, God willing, or touch wood in the universe, delivering, I have an amazing relationship with them today. They're just two of the most amazing people in the world and I love them to death. So something good came out of of all that. I guess looking back my father, although he didn't drink, yep. he was quite cold and distant. And I hope the the cycle of of that dysfunction has stopped with me. So I mean, I think I'm a hundred and eighty degree opposite father to my children and my dad was to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, amazing, and we'll talk more about that when we yeah. we talk about your life now and and what being in recovery means yeah. to you. So you're you're going through. You're married. Got all the things. You're having some kids. You know that the the drinking's picking up. You've become a daily drinker. What's w- w- I don't like saying what's your rock bottom because I know for me, I had millions of them um, both physically and m- mentally. Yeah. But when was the turning point where you thought in your in your actual right mind, something is not right here, I need help?
2: It, it took a long time. I knew it wasn't. And I think I always had in the back of my mind that I knew I'd have to stop drinking alcohol one day, but I thought Phew, that day's so far away. I'm not even thinking about it because I knew it was a problem. And I knew my life would be better without it, but I was still having too much fun and ticking too many boxes to even thinking about giving it up. Yep. So even in mid to late thirties and even into early forties, it was really starting to become a problem and an issue between my wife, myself and yeah. But I still managed to hide it a lot, um, pay the bills again, you know, just, align all those external things Mm -hmm. so basically there's no problem nothing to see here. move along yeah yeah
0: yeah and that dishonesty that comes out with the starting to hide and yeah
2: oh and the denial Mm. absolute denial Mm,
0: dishonesty to self exactly yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. i couldn't if
2: i'm lying to myself how can i be honest with anyone else Yeah. yeah
0: yeah yeah So you were, you were getting to, you're fighting with your wife, um, things were starting to get dire. Yeah. What was the first turning point of help? Who did you go to um, and how did that journey start?
2: So my eldest brother is 25 years sober and I look up yep. to him a lot. Um, but if I look back, oh, I was a complete, another, a hold of him thinking he was weak. He it was all willpower-based. Mm. He just didn't want to stop. And But now he's like a shining light and, a, and, and an example to me now. But back then I didn't see it that way. Um, and I just thought that um, I could keep c- continuing on as I was and I'd get away with it.
0: Can I ask you with that, because I do find this super interesting around the – because I know there's, there'll be people out there listening as well that think that being an alcoholic or being an addict is a choice of that person. And it's, a, it's a defect. Yeah. Um, and I know for me as well, I thought that about other people, which in turn then made me go, well, you know, I don't have I'm not strong enough. What's wrong with me? How do you feel about that now?
2: Oh, Um, I was very judgmental and actually had no idea about the disease of alcoholism and reading a lot about it and the WHO, the World Health Organization, classifies as a disease. Yep. But th- th- this is my take on it. It's the only disease that you can self-diagnose. <laughs> no, no, I mean, people could call you an alcoholic, but unless, for me, mm-hmm. unless I admit it to myself, it means nothing. And it's also the only disease that tells you you don't have it every day. Yep like 6 months sober, you can have a drink now. You'll be right. Look at you. You're doing well. Sobe, you made too much of this. It's, um, and I still, the word disease is still, for me, has a connotation to it
1: mm-hmm.
2: in that, you know, if someone's got a broken arm or, I don't want to say cancer, but something really bad, people can see it. They get sympathy. and yep. um, But this disease centers in my mind and, this is what I've really learned, and this is going back from a young age, when whether whatever I was using to self-soothe back then, and when I got older, it was alcohol. Is alcohol was never my problem. The problem was me. Yeah. Alcohol is my solution to living. Absolutely. And back then, I couldn't imagine living life without drinking. Like, who does that?
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: So, you're... When when you knew there was a problem, you knew there was you needed help. Who did you speak to, or how did that come about? Was it your decision to go and speak to a doctor or a rehab, or was it family? Or talk oh, me through that journey?
2: Okay, so I tried everything, and a lot of um, and a lot of I won't say anything, urging from my wife. Yep. like I tried psychologists, counsellors, hypnotherapists, which I didn't believe in when I walked in the door. so But I thought it was basically to shut everyone up. Look, I'm trying all this stuff and and I did all that. And then I started reading um, the little black book of AA. It's the old Daily Reflections, if anyone knows that. I think it's called 24 Hours a Day. But it's very God-centric, very religious. And as soon as I started reading that, I just, no, I don't. The God word put me off straight yeah. away. Yeah. I've changed my mind, but we'll talk about, we'll talk that, about that, I guess. Right. Um, So, yeah, I tried everything because I thought it is becoming a problem. Uh, I need to do something, but nothing worked. Hypnotherapists, counsellors, I went to a drug and alcohol uh, psychiatrist at Delton that, and they were just prescribing me drugs, um, mm-hmm. sedatives. Mm-hmm. Again, it's all masking it's all just, alcohol, it was just replacing alcohol with something else. Yeah. I mean, they say the witch for the bitch, sorry for swearing. But uh, whatever that is, it's just replacing one dependent, drug of dependence for another. Yeah. And that's all it did for me. And that went on for five, six years. Yeah, wow. Mm.
0: And in that five or six years, obviously, you have a brother in recovery, so you knew about AA. Yeah. Um, when did you first set foot into a room? Oh, I can maybe. tell you
2: the I can't tell you the uh, November 20, uh, 2017. Um and again we we'd sold a house in Glen Iris and things were going okay on paper, but I could tell it was affecting the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, never like our relationship was still good, but I could I can just tell they were concerned and my wife was beside herself. Yeah. But I was selfish and like. I'm okay. Nothing to see here. I'm drinking the same amount as I always have. I wasn't. I was drinking a lot more. So I'd, yeah, I was kidding myself. I I'd, I'd had my own business then because I left, um, I should go back a step. I got a promotion. I started working for a large engineering firm and I worked my way up the chain, and I went for a project manager role and I was so nervous I went and had three pints at lunchtime before I went in for the interview. And I got the job. And I'm just kicking back thinking, How good is life? Mm. I can go in I have a walk into an interview after three pints, get the job and I'm you know, I'm bulletproof, I'm invincible. But yeah. then I had to deliver. And uh less than two years later I took a redundancy and uh had my own subcontracting business in the same field in telecommunications uh and that just gave me i had a few guys working for me and i could just set them off to work and i could i was just doing the lunch circuit pretty much every day i could go local have a steak a few wines and then get home and yeah hard day work had a hard day at work to everything's good and um the money's coming in and but i was you know quite under the weather when i got home and then i'd follow that up with more drinks till after dinner when i could just go to bed and collapse mm. pass out rather not to black out but definitely help you sleep mm. and then wake up rinse and repeat and that was just a daily that became a daily thing
0: so yeah wow yeah I, and and yeah i understand that going through the motions and and you know work home drink sleep um so you I just want you to touch on, I guess, the, that your journey in like, so you've got to the point where you've turned, something's, something's gone on and you need help and you've started a journey into finding that help. Can you just give me a quick sort of summary on that journey, Yeah, um, which is now sort of got you to to nine months ago
2: yeah yes yeah, certainly um i remember the day again like it was yesterday I, i'd go to the local and i'd set up my laptop at eight o'clock in the morning because they open at seven and i had a drinking buddy and look at me i'm a high functioning alcoholic i got my laptop open i'm sending emails i'm making sure the guys doing what they're doing but i'm having a chardonnay at eight o'clock in the morning yeah like who does that yeah and still the warning bells aren't ringing <laughs> until one day they did yeah and i thought this is not a good way to live. And I'd had a few, so I didn't want to drive. So it was quite um, coincidental or serendipity or even a divine intervention moment, whatever you want to call it. But I was in East and I won't name places. Um, and I drove my car about a kilometre, pulled over to have a sleep at 11 o'clock in the morning. And I thought, this is not a good way to live. Uh, I'm going to ring the AA hotline. Mm-hmm. So I actually rang my brother. He said, ring the hotline. I rang the hotline. It was yeah, November 2017. And they said, where, where do you live? I said, East Melbourne. They said, there's a meeting. Here's the address mm-hmm. in East Melbourne tonight. And I was parked 200 metres from where that meeting was. And I went there that night. Inebriated, but I still went. Yeah. Um, that began my journey. And I knew absolutely nothing about AA. I thought, how can a group of um, ex-problem drinkers or alcoholics talking about their problems mm. possibly help you stop drinking? I really had no idea how it worked. When I walked in, I saw the steps on the wall and I thought, we're supposed to do all those tonight? Like, that's going to take more than an hour. <laughs> like, I had no idea.
0: The instant gratification of, yeah, yeah. this is going to be my night. I'm going to get fixed. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, look, look at me. I'm, I've come to AA. I'm... You know, and that tick another box. Look at me go, and uh, it took another year for at least things to start sinking in. Thinking, wow, this is a lot bigger problem than I ever thought.
0: Amazing! Um, I can't wait to hear more about it because we're going to go in after the next break. We're going to start talking about how you know your your real recovery journey took off and where you are today. So.
1: Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership.
0: Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023.
1: Become a 3CR subscriber today.
0: Call 03
1: 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
0: This is a living free show with 3CR Digital Radio, live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. We love our listeners and value each and every one of you. This week, we are striving to reach 1,000 subscribers in in 2023, and we need your help to reach it. Like so many community organizations, we need your continued financial support to keep 3CR on air and our community connected and strong. To subscribe jump online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or give us a call on 0394198377. So my name is Gab and today I'm chatting with Glenn about his recovery journey in alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous, I should say. So Glenn, we've got you into your first meeting, which was a God, what we we like to call around the rooms, a God job, um, as you know, and thus has started your journey into the recovery, I guess, sphere. Um, so let's jump back to to that point in your life and what happened next.
2: Sure. So yeah, my first meeting was um, that uh, November 2017 and I kept drinking, but I met a couple of really nice guys who I didn't know how nice and friendly the people in AA were till I experienced it firsthand. Mm-hmm. And one of them worked at a local rehab in Melbourne, and he kept ringing me every few days saying, how are you going? I'm saying, well, I'm still drinking. Mm-hmm. And he said, maybe you should come and do a seven-day detox. I said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. So I went and did a seven-day detox and thinking everything would be sweet after that. And um, I think I started drinking again a week after that. It was close to New Year's Eve. Uh, fast forward a little bit, I did... Another seven-day detox and I got up nearly six months and it was Mm -hmm. probably the best I've ever felt in my life. And what I've learned a lot since then, like I know people have gone to their first AA meeting and never picked up another drink. Yeah. I know people have been to different rehabs all around the country, you know, 12, 15 times and are still struggling to get it. Mm -hmm. The only thing I'm certain of is there is no perfect formula. Yeah. I fall somewhere in the middle of that category I believe at the moment um, I then did my <clears throat> I did a couple of seven day detoxes and at one point I nearly got up uh, I got up about eight months mm-hmm. and then I was gonna say for whatever reason but I know exactly the reason it's because I try to control everything and the universe and everything around me mm-hmm. and when I can't control things I uh, I reach for the bottle and when things aren't going my way, and my wife was really disappointed when i relapsed that time uh so i went and did a four week detox in the same place in malvern and came out and thought that's it i've got it now and got up again nearly nine months went on a holiday to vietnam and didn't drink and i thought that was a turning point yeah uh but then it wasn't long again after that until i got cocky i took back my will um No one could tell me how to do recovery. I knew better than anyone Mm -hmm. and ended up in another rehab down in Mornington, which uh, I won't go into too many details, but it wasn't a 12-step based program. Mm -hmm. And I busted five days after I got out of that. This is 2020, so we're coming into lockdown. So another good excuse for an alcoholic to relapse is look lockdown, business is going bad. I went from earning really good money to JobKeeper. Mm Mm-hmm. I've got an excuse now to, to to drink again and just, you know, throw everything I worked for. Although I've since found out all the sobriety you add up, you never lose it. No. It's all an experience. So I've never lost one day of sobriety. I've just learnt lots of different ways not to do it. Um, so
0: with that, Glenn. Yeah. What's the turning point now? I know that you know. I can I can say this. You and I we're two days apart in yes, our sobriety birthday are. anniversary date. Um, what is different this time? What do you feel is different? And what are you doing differently to help protect your recovery and your sobriety this time?
2: Uh, well, I certainly had a lot of things go wrong, and then you know, crashing my car and us leaving the family home for the last time. Because you know, I blame my wife, but at the end of the day she put up with a lot mm-hmm. and then i kept drinking for a long time and i guess i don't like you saying i hear it all the time but you're sick and tired of being sick and tired but i'd had enough mm-hmm. i think it was that final and i hope it's my final surrender because i can't i'm pretty sure i won't have a drink today but i can't guarantee i won't have one tomorrow yep. and if i think that then i'm in trouble but if i surrender on a daily basis then i'm a really good chance not to drink today and for me, that's been a big change—is mm-hmm. that daily surrender and living. What does at- that
0: look like, Glenn? What does that daily surrender look like? Because that's very rooms lingo. I understand it, but for our listeners, talk us through what that means and what you do to action that.
2: So it's good timing. I mean, I landed—you know—gift of recovery back in October. I landed a really good job, um, the most money I've been on since I didn't have my own business, and I got made redundant last Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, Lots of different reasons. That was a perfect excuse for me just to go. Well, you know, I tried pick up a drink, and everything will be better. But um, after speaking with my sponsor and running mates, such as yourself, and like you know, they're saying, there's nothing in my wo- well, there's nothing in my life I can't make worse by picking up a drink. Mm. And so that daily surrender for me is is living life on life's terms. It's I can't change what's happened. The only thing I'm in control of is letting go of control and just accepting things as they are. Mm -hmm. And when I do that now, things might not aren't going my way at the moment, but I can't control it. Yeah. But if I relax and surrender and just do the next right action, and sometimes that could be a small thing like yesterday, doing the lawns. I was doing the lawns yesterday and thinking I really wish I had my job back, but I'm doing, I'm being of service to mum, I'm doing the lawns, it's a nice day, yeah. and I'm just doing the next right action, and at the end of the day, I felt better. Yeah. Um, it's, that's, I've been really slack on my daily meditation and prayers, mm-hmm. and, you know, I've heard a great thing in the rooms, because I guess I'm a, an agnostic at heart, mm-hmm. but, this gentleman who I really admired shared in a meeting that um, for him God is a verb. Yeah, it's an action. It's it's not uh, a entity sitting in in judgment in the clouds, you know, dealing out death and punishment and rewarding the righteous. It's it's in the actions we all do. And I'll just share this really quickly. Um, and this has happened twice. My last two re- relapses my sponsor and another good friend in the rooms have knocked on my door on like a monday morning and they saw I was really really unwell and I mm. said you know I you can't come in I'm not good. Mm-hmm. They both came around the next day and took me to the doctors and took me to emergency and booked me in a rehab. I mean if that's not god or whatever you want to call god working through other people yeah. they showed me more love and compassion than my own family.
0: Yeah. Cause they get cause they understand the disease they have that disease as well, yeah.
2: yeah, and that's a big part of why I mean I'm right in the middle of bay now and doing service where I can and helping others, and I don't have any any answers at all, but if anything I've done or any of my experience can help one person, then it's worth it.
1: Mm.
0: it's that real fellowship, I know that's that's one of the biggest blessings that I've had you know in my recovery is the friends that you make because you get each other and it's it's a unique friendship. Yeah. So Glenn you did you did touch on um the relationship that you now have with your kids. So tell me about some of the things that you now, you know, you have as we say like in your wildest dreams you you know you, you that you can get them um when you're in recovery and Ultimately, you know, you talked about the materialism and stuff as a child and those sort of things. I know for me, I was the same. Like everything had to be, you know, on paper perfect. But I've yeah. now found wildest dreams means something completely different to me. So talk to me about your life now.
2: So, you know, despite what's just happening in the recent two mm-hmm. weeks mm-hmm. with work and something else will come along because this one Absolutely. did, and something happened. Like uh, I told my. We're still married, but I call her my ex. I told her as soon as it happened. So it was Monday, week ago. Mm-hmm. And her. I know what she automatically thought was, bang, Glenn's just going to reach for a drink again and the whole process is going to start again. And I know for a fact, if I'd have picked up a drink, I'd probably be in rehab right as we speak now.
0: Starting the cycle again. Because
2: the last three times I've picked up that first drink, I've ended up in rehab. And I spoke to my sponsor, I spoke to my ex, And he, you know, my sponsor is just like, you can't change this, but you can use this as a stepping stone to strengthen your recovery. And uh, my wife told my my son, who's 22, Mm -hmm. he sent me a message. Oh, I'm going to cheer up. (laughs) (laughs) He sent me a message on the Monday night a week ago, and it's the nicest message I've ever received on a text in my life. Yeah. And... He's just, and they both are, they're both just special kids. And my relationship with them, despite all the things that have happened, my multiple visits to rehab, uh, they see that I'm doing the work. I'm in the middle of AA. I'm trying to help others. Um, you know, I'm really, really far from perfect. But each day, if I can just improve something incrementally, I'm a little bit better of a person to... Today than I was yesterday, then I'm heading in the right direction, and um, and they can see that, and I don't have to tell them. Yeah, they can I just can see speak it,
0: louder than words.
2: Hundred percent, Gabs. Yeah, mm. they can see it in my actions, um, and you know, I can say all the right things and all the platitudes in a meeting, and if I leave the meeting and act like a douche, and it's all out the window. Absolutely. But um, I'm definitely of the variety of person that. I have to act my way into good thinking. I can't think my way into acting well. Mm-hmm. And that has really served me well. Like my sponsor's big on that. Just do the next right thing. If you're not sure what to do, just do the next right thing, which is 180 degrees opposite to what my first thought always is. Yep. So I always disregard my first selfish thought, pause. And then I know instinctively what's the right thing to do, but rarely in the past in active addiction I ever did it. And now, hopefully, each day, I'm just trying to do
0: that a little bit more. Yeah, that's that's beautiful, Glenn, and that's a, you know, that's great advice to give to those listeners out there um, that are that are sort of maybe questioning their relationship with alcohol, or even seeing behaviours that are similar. Um, You know, those isms that we connect the dots with around, you know, the solution of the drug or the drink, and the pause for me has been a huge one, and I think that's a beautiful note to end on so thank you so much for your time today you're welcome um, it's really lovely hearing an extended version of your story and i hope our listeners got just as much out of it as as i did so thank you
2: thanks for having me gab's it's been an honor thank uh, you
0: um if you would like to find out more about alcoholics anonymous you can phone them in australia on 1300 three hundred triple two triple two, or jump online at aa.org.au for more information. Um, I highly recommend if you're thinking about going to a meeting or getting to a meeting, there's a great uh, list of meetings on that site. You can also Zoom in. Um, but as we mentioned today, you know, getting in the rooms and starting to, you know, meet people who, you know, for me, I've, I've met some of my, my closest friends, Glennie included, um, you know, definitely get down. We, we welcome you with open arms. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent
1: community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.